Good morning. Happy Mother's Day again to all you moms out there. We're in the middle of a series. By the way, my name's Stephen. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, called My Life is a Mess. My Life is a Mess. Some of us can relate to that. And over the last four weeks, we've been looking at different topics that become really messy and applying the gospel to those four uh, different topics that we looked at. Well, today, we don't really have a topic. Or if you said, what's the topic? Our topic is life. Like, my life is a mess. All of it. It's just messy. If you feel like uh, your life might be a mess because you feel like you, you make progress and then you take steps back. Or what you thought was going to happen doesn't end up happening. What was once good is now bad. What was once uh, found is now lost. What was once whole is now broken, and it just feels messy. And no matter what you do, you can't seem to get your way out of the mess. For all of you mothers out there, your life feels like your child's room. It just can't stay clean. For the dads, I guess, your life feels like the Cleveland Browns. Just can't win, all right? So what do we do in the middle of the mess? Today, we're going to look at two ways, two ways that God moves in the middle of the mess and point this out, that he is in them both. Some of these ways, or one of these ways, there's two. One of these ways, I think oftentimes we look and we say, that's God, that's God, I know that's God. The other one, sometimes we ask the question, God, where are you in my mess? God moves in two types of ways. We're going to see that in this psalm this morning. We're in Psalm 126. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but interestingly enough, uh, I got on Facebook earlier this week and somebody, I know I mentioned Facebook and politics, so now we're already out. Okay, but anyway, I got on Facebook and somebody had shared an article and it was the, um, the, the hostages from North Korea. And it was a note that they had written. And on that note was a passage of scripture. Guess what it was? Psalm 126. This was the passage uh, that I saw Tuesday, that it had been the passage that those men had used during their captivity to keep them hopeful. Psalm 126 says this, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Those are becoming some of my favorite words in scripture. We were like those who dream when God restored our fortunes. So something at some point was broken. Now, some commentators or scholars will say this. Uh, that is pointing to a particular moment when the Jewish people, God's people, were in captivity and he brought them out. Others will say, no, it was more general. They were always in captivity and then free in captivity and free. And it was more of a general statement. It doesn't matter if it's general or specific. In fact, it doesn't matter really if it's it's Old Testament or New Testament. If it's the Old Testament, it's the Jewish people. If it's the New Testament, it's his church. In fact, we'll see later, it doesn't even matter if it's corporate or personal. It's all entwined in this verse. When the Lord restored the fortunes, they're clearly looking back. They're looking back at a time in life when life was really messy. And they're saying, God restored it. God restored our fortune. It was done, out, and then God stepped in, and he stepped in like a dream. 
We were like those who dream. Why was it a dream? It was a dream because of how quickly it happened. One way God moves, and you've seen this, if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, he moves succinctly, he moves quickly, he moves powerfully. You get diagnosed on Tuesday, you show back up on Friday, people were praying for you, and the doctor goes, are you a different person? I don't know where it went. Something bad happens and the relationship is done. It's over. It's out. You're going to file the papers. Uh, You're never going to see him again. You're never going to talk to him. And all of a sudden, in a moment, something happens and it's like, whew, we're back together. What a dream. What a dream. You start the ministry, you start the business, you start the whatever, and it seems like overnight it grows at a rate faster than you could have imagined. It's like a dream because it's beyond anything you would have thought in the natural. And all you can do is look and say, God, you had to have done that. It's like a dream. Oh, it's so much fun when God moves like this. It really is. And what these guys are doing is they're looking back at these moments and they're saying, God, you restored something that was lost, broken, hurting, whatever, and you restored it like a dream. And it says, here was our response, and this ought to be your response when God moves this way. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Not the laughter of, I'm laughing at my enemies because they thought I was down and out. It's the laughter of, God, I just can't believe you've been this good. It's the single person who's been praying for so long. And then all of a sudden, he or she shows up in love and it happens and the relationship grows and everyone around him just looks and says, look what God did. It's like a dream. I, I do want to issue a bit of a warning here because I think there's a certain um, vein of theology right now that is so nervous about looking anything like a prosperity gospel that it forgets that we have a heavenly father who gives good gifts to his children. We, of course, don't go to the opposite end. We don't make God the great banker in the sky. But we don't forget that he is a God who loves and who gives good gifts, who at times answers our prayers like a dream. I think it also could mean this, Christian, Are you still a person who dreams? Or has life totally broken that? God can move like a dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Woo! And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the the word nations there is is, uh, people who aren't of faith. So in the, in the New Testament, we would say, then the unbeliever said, look what God has done. It's like people looking in and they're saying, we had that person counted out. We never thought he or she would do this or that again. We never thought that would work. We never thought the ministry would happen. We never thought uh, the business would take out. We never thought, and they're looking in and they're saying, I don't know how that happened. In fact, it's so good. Even uh, non-Christians look in and they say, that must be like God or something. Because otherwise that wouldn't happen. He or she was out. And then God moved like a dream. Then they make it personal. They say, yeah, yeah, 
the Lord, they're affirming what they're saying. They're saying, yes, yes, yes. The Lord, God, he has done great things for us. We are glad. We're glad. Where God has moved in your life like a dream. Look back, stop, particularly if you feel like you're in a mess right now. See how he has moved in a dream and dare to ask him to do it again. Because he can. And sometimes he moves like a dream. But he doesn't always. He doesn't always. Amen. Praise God when he does. But what about when he doesn't? See, in verse 4, there's a very noticeable transition. Now they're saying in the present tense, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore the broken relationship I have with my adult child. Restore the business that was once so vibrant, the ministry that was once so alive, the reputation that was once so good. Fill in the blank. Restore it, Lord. Restore it, Lord. Restore it, Lord. And they're praying exactly like they had been praying in the past. They're saying, restore it. And in the past, they're looking back how God did it like a dream. And now they're living in the mess and they're praying the same prayer, which does remind us of this. If your life is in a mess, don't be afraid to ask them to fix it. They don't say, God, uh, in the middle of my mess, just give me the perseverance to endure. Teach me what you want me to know. Uh, Your grace is sufficient. Listen, all of those things are true and they are adequate prayers and they are good prayers and things we should pray in the middle of the mess. But those prayers don't prohibit us from also praying, but also restore it, Lord. Teach me what you want me to know, but also please heal. Teach me what you want me to know, Lord, but also please bring it back to life. Restore it, oh God. Restore it. In fact, right now, I bet we could all identify what it is we want to see restored. Maybe it's just the passion that you once had for God that is gone. And you don't know what else to do other than to say, I've tried. I went to a concert. It didn't happen. Restore my passion, God. But he doesn't restore it like a dream. Here's the other way God restores. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev is a real place, an actual place on earth. It's most referenced in the Old Testament. And in the Negev, uh, it was a place of isolation. It was a place of dryness. It's an actual physical place, but there's a metaphorical place that's being discussed here uh, within the context of the passage. It's that place in life where you're just dry, where it's a drought, where it's uh, it's like, I just can't win. It's like, God, I'm calling out for you, but I don't hear your voice. God, I want to follow you, but I don't know where to go. God, I feel like I've been persevering, but we're not making any progress. God, I've put in so much work. How come there's nothing on the other side? It's the Negev. In the Old Testament, uh, whenever the Negev is mentioned, not always, but, but most often, I'll show you the two exceptions. When the Negev is mentioned, uh, it is re, uh, discussing this idea of the dryness, the desert, that place. In fact, good things don't typically happen in the Negev. 
Abraham and Lot show up at the Negev together, unified. You know what happens in the Negev? They split. It's a metaphor for life, by the way, that oftentimes we end up in the dry season. Something breaks down, and when we need to stay together, we split. That in the dry season, when we actually need each other most, we go separate ways. There's another story about a woman in the Negev. Her name is Hagar. She uh, finds herself in a very interesting position due to her boss, uh, her master, Abraham, and she ends up getting banished from the family with a young child, and she's banished to where? The Negev. She ended up in the Negev, and it wasn't even really her fault. Sometimes we do. We end up in the Negev, and we didn't really, I mean, it wasn't really our fault. We're just there. And we're there and we're in that season and we're crying out, God, move like a dream. I know you can do it. And sometimes we err because we think God only moves like a dream. And people will look in and they'll say, well, it's obviously not working or they obviously shouldn't have done it or it's obviously not gonna happen because the speed of which it's happening, it's not happening. Joseph did not go from the pit to the palace overnight. Job did not go from losing everything to getting everything back in a snap. David did not go from anointed to ascending on the throne in a week. It was decades. And guess what? God was in that too. He's in both. He's in both. But... The metaphor we're going to see deeper in this passage, it's like a seed going in and then reaping a harvest. And the seed has to be watered. One way the seed is watered, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. One way the seed is watered, and there's prophecy about this in the book of Jeremiah that talks about the land of the Negev being restored. And historically speaking, there's a few instances where the actual physical place of Negev has looked more like Ireland than New Mexico. Only a few times. And people would say the reason that it has done that is because there's a mountain range that's nearby and there are certain moments when the mountain range gets so full that it just starts flooding into the Negev. And it's like uh, almost overnight, there's a transformation. It's one way it happens. That's what this guy was praying But in the very next verse, he talks about the other way it happens. In verse 5, he says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. There's another way God moves. There's another way that liquid grows the seed in the Negev. And it's not the waters rushing down the mountain, the high season of life. What he's saying is it's literally the tears from your eyes that grow the seed. It's the tears, mother, that you pray for that child. It's the tears, father, 
of not knowing where provision is going to come from. It's the tears of a loved one for a sick one. It's the tears of every hurt, every abandonment, every broken dream, every moment you thought you were about to make progress and you didn't. And it's the tears going into the ground that waters the seed. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It doesn't say can. It doesn't say might. It says those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's not just a statement of potential. It is a statement of promise. If you sow in this way with your tears, you will reap with shouts of joy. So he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home, but it doesn't say when he's coming home or when she's coming home. He who goes out weeping, you don't know how long you're going to be out there weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy at some point, bringing his sheaves with him. An abundant supply. The promise here for the way God moves in this is that it isn't quick. It doesn't happen overnight. The salvation doesn't occur to the lost friend. The child doesn't immediately come back. The marriage isn't immediately restored. Your quest for friendship isn't immediately met. Your desire to be married doesn't happen on your timeline. The launch of uh, uh, the ministry or the initiative or whatever it might be doesn't go as quickly as you want it. But the message of this story is though you're prostrate on the ground crying, keep on planting. And though you've been injured by all of the attacks, whether they're physical or emotional, keep on investing. And even though you're damaged by what people have said or what they have done, that every tear that has fallen from your eyes is not a sign that you won't get there, but the very thing that has to happen in order for you to get there. It is what brings the seed out of the ground. It means keep on praying for that child. Keep on asking God to restore it. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. We see this in no better place, no better place than in the very message of the gospel. On the night of his betrayal, we see Jesus, who is called a man of sorrows, who knew more sorrow than we could ever know, who knew each and every one of our sorrows individually. We see Christ, whose very sorrow, whose very death was what needed to go in so that the joy of salvation could come out. Christ, who sowed in tears for our salvation, emerges from the tomb with shouts of joy for our salvation. 
he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. In fact, this is really the story that we see all throughout the scriptures. Because if you look back at Joseph, you realize that uh, Joseph, who was thrown into a pit and betrayed by his brothers, and it took decades for him to come into the palace and to be ascended up next to Pharaoh as second in command, that Jesus is just a greater Joseph. Jesus, who was also betrayed by his brothers, but not to the point of almost death, to the point of actual death. Jesus, who like Joseph, lost his reputation. Jesus, who like Joseph, was then ascended up and brought to second in command, not to the Pharaoh, but to the king, to the father. That Jesus is just the greater Job. That Job who faced great sickness, Job who who faced betrayal by his closest friends and even his spouse. Jesus faced that type of betrayal by those who were closest to him, his closest friend on the night of his death. But like a new family was given to Job, a new family, you and I, were given to Jesus. Jesus is the greater David, the promised king as a child, but it took 33 years for him to finally claim his proper place. What's the message? Don't stop sowing. Don't stop sowing. It's Mother's Day. Mom, don't give up on that kid. I didn't talk to my mom for almost four years other than the occasional holiday. I can't imagine the tears that brought her. And the other day, we were all writing something to her, like a little book with memories. And I was writing through it, and we were saying these things from our childhood. And in one of them, all I had to write was, I'm sorry I took those four years from you. I can't imagine what that felt for her. But I know this, she never stopped sowing. Friend, don't stop sowing. If you don't, you will reap with shouts of joy. There will be a day of victory. And in the moment, the only response you can have to that moment is, Look what God did. It wasn't me. Look what he did. Look how he restored it. And to him be all the glory.